This, this morning's scripture reading is Romans 6, verses 15 through 23. What then? Are we to sin because we are no, not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of the teaching to which you are committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you are slaves of sin, you are free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of these things is death. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you, sorry, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of God. Amen, amen. You guys can go ahead and grab a seat. Welcome to Salt Church. My name is Keith. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you look around the room, there's two things that happen. All right, first of all, it is family Sunday. And so there's going to be a bunch of little kids in here coloring. They're sitting next to their siblings. Guys, it could get a little crazy in here today, all right? Uh, But hey, I remember when I went to church as a kid, I think I argued with my siblings the whole time, right? So hey, if that happens, don't be surprised This is a church of grace. Kids, you are welcome here. This is your church. Uh, You don't belong in some classroom all the time, but we believe you are disciples of Christ right now. Uh, And next up, if you look around the room, you might notice there's a lot of people gone. Why is that? Not because our church is failing, okay? There are actually 83 people, actually I think 89 now, uh, up at Camp Timberline near Estes Park, Colorado. And uh, every year we do something called a fall retreat. This is the first time we took University of Northern Colorado students up there. They joined with CSU students. There's around 200 people, and they've been worshiping Jesus, getting in his word, confessing sin. And guys, it was amazing. Uh, Me, my wife and family, and Chris, we got home last night at like midnight, so we're a little bit of a hot mess today. But hey, we we did it. We were here. We set up. Uh, But guys, it was absolutely incredible what God is doing Uh, up at Camp Timberline. A couple little stories. CSU did this last year, and there were about 40 students. And they said on a scale from 1 to 10 how great the camp was, they said it was a 3 out of 10. But since the University of Northern Colorado has joined with our college staff, they said this year was a 10 out of 10. Praise God. And Drake Daniels, our director, he comes from Michigan State, a a university of 50,000 students where they do fall retreats. And you know what he said? He said, this fall retreat was better than anything I have seen Michigan State do. So I was like, praise God. God is on the move uh, in Colorado. And probably my favorite story that happened last night uh, happened after the last worship set, after prayer, after the sermon. Ooh. And, uh, and what was incredible is there's this girl uh, who's been coming to the Salt Company College Ministries, and God's been working on her heart, drawing her in. And she's part of this group of people in our culture Uh, that are probably the most hostile and antagonistic towards Christians, okay? And in my mind, this is like the least likely person 
uh, to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And so after the message, uh, she's convicted. The Spirit of God is at work. Jesus is drawing her in. She goes and tells some ladies on our college staff, hey, I gave my life to Christ during that message. And what happened next is 20 people from our church gathered around her, and they prayed for her, and they prayed that God would be with her in this new life of Christ. And what's so amazing, what they prayed, is that she would no longer be a slave to sin, but that she would be a slave to Christ. And today we're going to continue in the book of Romans and how Jesus sanctifies us by faith. And as you read that passage, Rachel, I bet a lot of you guys read that and you're like, honestly, I have no idea what what he's even talking about, right? Uh, When you talk to most church plants, they don't touch the book of Romans because it's too confusing, it's too complex. But me and John were like, hey, this is God's word and we would rather feed you guys, you know, we want to give you like the meat, like the Big Mac of the Bible, all right? We don't want to give you the kale chips and uh, the low-carb version of the Bible. So Romans is extremely dense, but it's extremely powerful. And so what Paul is talking about is this concept of sanctification, of growth. And honestly, it reminds me of one of my favorite stories growing up is the story of the Count of Monte Cristo. I don't know if you guys have ever read the book, have seen the movies, maybe there's just one movie. Um, But it's the story of a guy named Edmund Dantes, and he's just this great young guy. He's engaged to Mercedes. He's a hard worker, but he's wrongfully accused, put in prison for treason, and then his best friend steals his fiance, and he's sentenced to the Chateau d'If, the worst prison imaginable for life. So not, not a good situation to be in, right? And in prison, he meets this man trying to escape. He calls him the priest. This guy's in prison because he has stolen and he knows where the lost treasure of Sparta is. So he's basically a billionaire, but he won't tell anyone where it is. Uh, but they come together, come up with a plan to escape. And on the way out, this priest actually dies. Um, cave collapses around him. And he says to Edmund, he says, hey, when you get out of prison, use this money for good. And Edmund says, surely I'll use it for revenge, for evil. And so he gets out of prison, but he finds himself in bitterness in anger, and deceit, and rage. And he finds that the second prison is actually worse than the first. And guys, this is the deception of sin. This is why this message matters today. If you think you're free, like Edmond, you might actually be deceived. See, sin says this. You think you're free, but you're actually a slave to yourself. You're a slave to your selfishness. You're a slave to pleasure and idols and all the things of the world. And so today we're going to see this framework that Paul lays out, that everyone is a slave to something. But there's only one type of slavery that will lead to freedom and will lead to life. And before we jump into the text, I would love if you guys would pray with me. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the church that you are building. We thank you for the stories that are happening at Fall Retreat. We pray for our staff, our church members, all of the college students up there, Jesus, that Uh, You would fill them with your spirit, reveal your gospel to them. And I pray they would come back down from that mountain and they have a hunger and a desire to live for you and to reach their university for you, Jesus. And I pray you bless our time this morning, God. Jesus, we thank you that you have come to give us freedom. And I pray we would understand what that freedom is, that anyone in here who is a slave to some type of sin, Jesus, you'd expose it, you'd remove it, and you would show us that you are a powerful and loving king. And that when we follow you, There's life and life abundant. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen. All right, guys, so my first point is this, no longer a slave to the law. Let's just look at verse 15. It says this, what then? 
Are we to sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? By no means. So when Paul is writing this, he knows that Christianity is going to be such a contrary message to every other religion in the world that he knows there's going to be critics. And so he prepares this question. And the question is this. This is what the critic says. Paul, if we don't have a whole bunch of rules in our church, people are just going to go absolutely crazy. What do you mean we don't need to be under the law? Think about it like this. The critic today would be like, what if you got rid of every law in the United States of America? Think it'd go well or poorly? Kids, I want you to think of this. I want you to imagine you show up to school and the teacher and the principal, they're just like, no more rules. We don't have any more rules at Frontier Academy, University, Maplewood. We're just done with rules. What do you guys think is going to happen? It's going to be absolute chaos, right? It's going to be anarchy. It's going to be like that movie, The Kindergarten Cop with Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? And, and Portland, I believe the city of Portland actually tried to do this for a whole district. They're like, no more rules. And they thought it was a great idea. And honestly, I, I've heard it became a very, very unsafe space. And see, Paul is saying, though, if you are a born-again Christian, you don't need to be under the law. The law is for bad guys. It's not for good guys who have been made right with God. And so what does it mean to be under the law? Now, it's a little bit different than Uh, kind of American laws, but Paul is talking about the Jewish commandments. And if you followed these 10 commandments, if you adhered to the law, then if you did them well enough, you would be acceptable to God. But the law did this. It revealed something. It didn't make us good. It revealed that we were bad. And so the law does a few things to you. It makes you compare and compete with other religious people. That's the only way you know if you're actually doing well enough. All right, the law doesn't make you a loving person. That's what we saw with the Pharisees. That's what we saw in the parables that we preached on earlier. The law makes you very either rebellious to run away and just say, I can't do it, or it makes you very arrogant. Uh, you could be like this as a Christian. You could say something like this. You know, I go to all the prayer meetings. I set up and tear down for church. I give more money than anybody. I follow all of these rules. I, I don't even watch TV. And if you follow all of these rules... The problem is you can become arrogant and you look at other Christians and you say, I'm better than them and I wish they were doing what I was doing. And you can easily become arrogant if you're under the law. And the other thing that I've seen the law do to people is it makes people extremely insecure. I grew up in Wyoming and there was this really strange religious cult where everything was based about the law. And the problem with the law when I would talk to them is they just said, I just don't know if I'm ever doing enough. I feel like God is always mad at me. And I need to do just one more good thing. And maybe if I turn my life around enough, then God will love me. And so the law led to extreme insecurity. And the best way that I like to picture uh, how we approach God, either the law or grace, is this. Uh, The reality is there's two doors to get into heaven. I know that sounds like blasphemy. Just hear me out. Two ways to be right with God. The first door is if you can live a perfect life. You can follow the law perfectly and never sin you can be with God. And 90% of the world and all religions line up at door one and they say, God, look at my resume. Look at my spiritual resume. Look at all the good things I do. Look at me, God. You should accept me because of how good I am. 90% of the world is lined up there. And the reality is no man is good enough. All sin, all die. We can't do it. But this is the good news of the gospel. Jesus is the only man who has never sinned. He takes that test He fulfills the law completely. He goes into door number one 
opens it up. He opens a back door and he says, there's a new way to approach God. If you'll put your faith in me and trust me and let me carry you in with my resume and you make your faith about me, not your religious pedigree, you will be approachable and acceptable to God. And guys, we can say this now as Christians who have faith. I am good and I am holy and I am a son or a daughter of the king, not because of what I do, but because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. And so why don't we need the law to live a good life? This is what Paul's getting at. Paul is saying when Jesus breaks into your life, he does two things. He, your, he changes your delights and he changes your desires. And just a little bit about my story. There was a time in my life, I think in my teenage years, probably from like 12 to 22, and I was an insecure young man, very far from God. And I pursued all of these things to try to rid this insecurity. Relationships, athletics, I desired fame, success, approval. I was living in sin, and I thought, if I can just get that thing, maybe I'll feel like a confident man. And then Jesus broke into my story. He changed my heart so much. And I remember the moment I got baptized, I couldn't believe that God would forgive me. So convicted of all the sin that I was living in in college. I went down into the water and I just said, God, if you'll really forgive me, a hypocritical sinner, I'm yours, God. Forever, just, just use me however you want. And I gave my life to Christ. And what happened when I got baptized, this is what grace does, is it transforms your heart. The fact that I was forgiven and loved, I now had new desires and I had this new power to live a godly life. And the craziest thing happened, guys. I couldn't enjoy sin anymore. I was a pathological liar as a little kid. Like, if I were going to get in trouble with my mom and dad, I'd be like, I didn't do it. I promise. I mean, I would swear. I would make oaths. Like, I was a liar. I would cheat in school. If I didn't do my homework, I'd look off my smart friend. Like, you know, and if they, I was, I was a liar. I was a cheat. I was insecure. I was a drunk, I was a partier in college, but something happened with grace in my heart. All of a sudden, every time I lied, I would feel totally convicted. And it was crazy. I I was so used to lying, this bad habit, and then I'd be convicted like half a day later, and I'd have to call up my friend and be like, hey, honestly, I totally exaggerated about that number. Like, it wasn't 300. It was more like, you know, a 200-pound elk, you know, or bear or whatever. Like, I was always lying, but I was convicted, right? And then my friends would be like, hey, do you want to go out and party and get drunk? And let's just, let's just go out a night on the town. And in my heart, I was like, you know what's weird? I don't even want to do that anymore. What happened to me? This is amazing. And this new desire for holiness led me, led me to pursue Christian fellowship, all new friends. I was in Bible studies every week. I started to join these prayer meetings. And if there was ever a mission trip, I'd be like, I want to go on this mission trip. And my new heart was not to use people. But I just looked around at the world and started praying for people. And I was like, Lord, I want them to know the love and grace of Jesus. And I didn't need a whole bunch of rules, guys. God had changed my heart. And so Paul explains next why Christians can't continue to live in sin. The argument is, man, if you're so forgiven, we don't need the law. Y'all are just going to live crazy, rebellious, sinful lifestyles. And this is what Paul says in in Romans 6.16. It says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness? So Paul gives us this framework for reality. I want you guys to picture this. This is the lens that we're supposed to view the world in. There's only two kinds of people. 
You're either a slave to Jesus or you're a slave to sin. Now, what slavery to sin looks like, it's probably different with everybody, but there's really only two kinds of people in the world. And Paul uses this illustration of slavery because people in Rome would get it. Scholars would say at this time in the Roman church, maybe more than half of the church was made up of slaves. Isn't that wild? And now context, slavery in Rome was very different than what we call North American antebellum slavery, okay? North American antebellum slavery was all based on race. It's a complete abomination. It devalues humans made in the image of God. It takes away their freedom. It takes away their choices. It is the worst thing ever. And it was still bad in Rome too, but their slavery was not based on race. It was actually based on money. In the ancient world, slavery was based on money. How did this work? Let's say you owned a field. You couldn't make enough money to pay for your debt. You would just say to somebody, hey, I'll come work for you, or you can own my land. Just let me work on it. If you couldn't make your mortgage payment or your credit card payment or your student loan payment, guess what would happen back then? You would just become a slave to the lender, and they would own you for X number of years until you paid off your debt. Can you imagine how terrifying that kind of a world would be? I was like just thinking that. I'm like, literally, if that were today, nobody would get a credit card, right? I mean, man, if you forget your payment, they would enslave you and your family, and you would just have to go work for them. Wouldn't that be terrible? Your wife's like, hun, you didn't make your credit card payment? Sorry, we all got to pack up. We got to go work the farm for seven years. I'm really sorry. But you can imagine back then, uh, it was a different world financially. And so Paul is using a financial principle to make a spiritual reality for us. And Paul is saying sin is a lot like Roman slavery with money and debt. Except our sin payment, our sin debt is so great that no matter how hard we work and try to be good, we can't pay it off. It'd be like having a student loan of, you know, $10 billion with a 55% interest rate. Like, no matter how hard you work in your life, you're not even going to get close to paying it off. So I want you guys to think of life like this. Uh, you're walking through Sam's Club, and you keep putting things in your cart, all right? And then when you go to check out, uh, if you don't have the receipt, they don't let you out, right? So think of, think of sin like that. You keep putting all of this stuff in your cart. Man, I, I was angry. Uh, I was divisive. I was lustful. I was greedy. I was proud. Every time you sin, it's like putting another $10,000 on your tab. And then you go to check out, and you don't have any money. You have no way to pay it. And so we're slaves to sin. It owns us. We don't own sin. And this is what Paul is saying. The deception of sin is so terrible, so strong, that most people think with their freedom they're in control of their lives. But they aren't. There's this nature in us naturally that controls us and makes us slaves to pleasure or money, success, comfort, approval. And these things become your master. That's what Paul is saying sin is like. And so we might not have slavery today, uh, North American antebellum slavery or Roman slavery, uh, but we still have slave masters today. And like I said, people think they're in control. And, and this is how I know it is people say this. I run into young people and they say, hey, I'll follow Jesus when I'm a little bit older. You know, I still got some wild living to do. Maybe I'll commit to Jesus later. And you know they won't. You want to know why? They're so deceived because they think that right then in their, that moment, sin is more enjoyable than Jesus. 
And one day they think they're going to flip that and change their mind and say, oh, yeah, yeah, Jesus is more enjoyable. No, they're so deceived. They're ruled by a slave master of sin. So here's how slave masters kind of work today, okay? Money is a great example. And here's the thing. Money is a great tool. God gave it to us to steward and work hard. But when we make money a master, it becomes a terrible master. Think about it like this. When things are going well financially, you have joy. Everything's good in the world. You're happy. You know, you see some net gain. You're like, man, it's going well. And then if you're anything like me, something breaks down, your vehicle breaks down, you get a, need to get a new roof, call the plumber, and you, you try to hold it off, and you're like, man, I don't want to see that money leave my bank account. And you get anxious, right? And, and what money does is it becomes like this slave master. It beats you up. It causes anxiety in your life. It gives you fear. It makes you distrust other people. And the worst thing I've seen money do is it makes you neglect your family and your friends as you try to get more and more in life, thinking that it will make you happy. Terrible master. Uh, The next one is pleasure. This is a big umbrella. Pleasure is a great gift that God's given us with so many different things, with sex and food and vacations and all these things. Great gifts, right? But the lie is this. If I live for pleasure and make it the center of my life, I'll have joy. I'll be complete. But what happens is this pleasure, if you make it the center It will take a toll on your life. It'll take a toll on your body. Like if I just eat seven donuts every day, even though I love it, it's going to affect my health. It's going to affect my relationships. I'm going to have to hibernate, right? I'm 36. When I eat two donuts, I have to take a nap, guys. And then my kids are neglected. It's terrible, right? So pleasure can be a terrible thing. And I've seen uh, men struggle in this area, and it begins to ruin their marriage and their relationships. And you find yourself alone and full of shame, So pleasure is like a slave master that controls you. The next is approval. Uh, This is a big problem. You live for likes, to look good, and you just beat yourself up if you don't feel good about yourself. If you don't look good, you see a picture of yourself and you're like, man, is my double chin really that big? Have you guys ever had that moment? You're like, man, and you just beat yourself up, right? Um, And here's the reality. We spend so much time uh, working on our bodies, and the reality is most people don't even care about you. And, and think about that. What a terrible slave master. Spend hours and hours trying to look nice for people that don't even care about you. And you just feel like you're never good enough. Terrible slave master. And approval makes you feel shame and anxiety. I remember at the age of 15, I didn't like how I looked. I don't know if you guys can relate as a teenager, insecure. My little brother, he's like blonde hair, blue eyes, perfect teeth, you know, you know, 0% body fat. And I just remember looking at him and just being like, man, I wish I looked like my brother. But you know what happened when I came to faith in Christ? He, I just realized God made me like this. I'm not a mistake. I'm unique. I'm the only me. And Jesus loves me just how I am. And Jesus is such a good master compared to the opinions and the approval of other things. And so Paul is saying, guys, there's a better way to live. There's a really good master out there. If you follow him, there's this path to life. Let's look at verse 17 and 18. It says this. Paul says, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin of all the things I just talked about have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. And what Paul is saying right here, he's saying those old sinful ways those old masters, those old 
bad habits don't have to control or ruin your life anymore, Christian. You're free. Paul is saying sin is like going back to that mean ex-boyfriend, right? That guy who treats you like trash, who tries to control you, manipulative, uh, and he doesn't let you have friends. We all have seen that guy, right? And Paul is saying, don't go back to that guy. You don't have to. He's trash. Don't go back to sin. He's a terrible master. And Paul reminds us of grace, that only Jesus can set you on the path of life. He's the only master. Like what Jesus says, that he's gentle and lowly. Come to me. I'm a good master. Jesus said, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. It reminds me of my friend who grew up in the church. And their church, the center of everything they did was the law. And he had this secret hidden sin. And he knew it was wrong, but it had power over him. No matter what he did, he couldn't be free. He was full of shame. He had to hide it. And you know what happened? He came into a church where grace was the center. And he opened up and he started to talk about the secret sin. And you know what happened? People didn't come down hard on him. They didn't make him feel shame. He knew it was wrong. He was in a dark place. And we just said, hey, man, you know God forgives you. He still loves you. We forgive you. And you know what's amazing? He got into a culture of grace, this place where people were rooted in Christ and how great he was as a master. And now Jesus broke into his life, kicked out that slave master, and now this man is following Jesus, and he told me his marriage is better than ever. He's thriving and full of life. And this is the power of grace. And so church, we obey not for love, but from love. We are loved in Jesus. We obey not to be in right standing with God, but we obey because we are the children of God. And Jesus gives us a new heart that beats for sanctification. I want to look at verse 19 now. He mentions this word sanctification. For just as you once presented your members and body and life as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So Paul brings up this idea of sanctification. Now, some of you may have heard this word before, uh, but for a lot of you, you're like, honestly, I have no idea what that means. But I want you to know, as a Christian, you have to understand this word if you want to understand the Christian life. It's of paramount importance. So, so if you haven't heard anything today, tune in, okay? You need to understand what this is in your life. Uh, this is like a doctor. Uh, the basic thing a doctor does is he's going to check your pulse and your blood pressure, right? That's like foundational stuff. And so sanctification is the foundational stuff of Christianity, and it's the pulse. It's the blood pressure of the Christian life that you're living. And so here's my definition of sanctification. It's the process of having your old bad habits and patterns chiseled away. Say it one more time. It's the process of having your old bad habits and patterns chiseled away. I think what Paul is saying right here, he's saying it's removing the former marks of slavery. So when you were a slave in that culture, you would have to have a mark, either a tattoo or a nose ring. But once you were set free, you could remove those marks and you didn't have to be a slave anymore. And guys, in my story, this is how it went. I came to faith. Jesus drew me in, revealed the gospel. I received the gospel. I was born again at the age of 22. I went from death to life. And I remember when I ran into a pastor in my hometown and told him I was a Christian, he was like, he actually cursed. He said, you are 
blank in me right now. I never thought you would become a Christian. You were the one that was the most crazy, rebellious kid in all of Lander Valley High School. How is this possible? Praise God. So you can imagine, still at the age of 25, I was a mess. I needed to be sanctified. I was saved, yes, but there was a process that was going on. And here's where I was a mess. I was a mess in regards to conflict, to relationships, to money, and to forgiveness. I remember conflict for me always led to gossip. I didn't understand how to do conflict, right? And even when I got married, this is what conflict looked like. Not with my wife, but with other people. I would have conflict with people, maybe at work, a friendship, and I would go to my wife, and I would share this story where I'm always the good guy, right? And then I would point this person out to just be this terrible, inhumane, possessed sinner, right? And, and then my wife would hear these stories from me and be like, my goodness, that person really is the most wicked person in the world, right? And it would cause division in our community because of how I would talk about other people to my wife. It was sin. It was gossip. And now I'm thankful that God's revealed this to me. Anytime I share conflict now with my wife, I kind of laugh and I'm like, honestly, hon, if you heard their side of the story, you'd probably say I'm honestly just as in the wrong and I'm really dumb too. And so there's this process of how to do conflict. Guys, community was really hard for me. I was very divisive and loud. I was not a good listener. I was never wrong. You guys know, you guys ever run into those guys who's a know-it-all? They're like an expert in every field in the world. Whether it was like, you know, uh, something medical or something diet-related, something about cars, like I was the expert because I Googled it, right? Uh, and I was the know-it-all, like literally no fun to be around. But the process of sanctification, just a friend saying, Keith, you're a terrible listener. You need to learn to listen. You should probably go get counseling. Like you got some serious hangups, dude. And honestly, exposing those things was the best thing for me as I learned that God wanted to change me so I could benefit the people around me. And with money, you guys, I was absolutely terrified. I was afraid to be generous. And I still have to learn daily how to trust God and be generous and live like God is my master and not money. And this is a process, guys, and it's hard. And here's the reality. When you're a Christian, you're going to look back on your life and say, man, I was so dumb. You guys ever have that moment where you're like driving and you think of something you said like five years ago and you're like, oh, you start turning red and sweating. You're like, I was so, who was I back then? All right. I don't know if you've ever had that moment. But anyways, I want to say, yes, it's embarrassing. But I'd say as a Christian, that's a good sign that you're growing, that you don't even know who you were five years ago. And here's the truth, church. This is hard to hear. Right now, there are things in your life that you aren't aware of that hurts the people around you, that hurts yourself. You don't even know. And the process of growth is so painful because it's no fun to find out you have unhealthy patterns or dysfunction or old family dysfunction that still comes up, that there's still sin in your life. And you're never going to stop the process of sanctification until you're resurrected from the dead. So you're with Jesus. But when God exposes it, you confess it, and he has the power to change you. And what happens with sanctification is you become more like Christ, and this is what the world needs. More Christians who look more like Christ. Which leads to my last point, the fruit of sanctification. Let's look at verse 20 and 21. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What was the result or what was the fruit that you were getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? 
For the end of those things is death. So before Jesus, you were free to do whatever you wanted, right? You can just go crazy. But what happened with that kind of lifestyle? How did that go for you, Paul is saying? And so church, I think we need a new definition of freedom. Here's how we define freedom in America. You are free to do whatever you want. I mean, you can do crazy, you can go do mushrooms, right? You're free to do whatever you want. And I think that this definition of freedom is good, right? Uh, I love America, and it's close to the true definition. The biblical freedom is this. You are free, but with your freedom, you are obligated to follow Christ and do the right thing. And this is the paradox of freedom, church. The only way to be free is to be a slave of Jesus Christ. You want to know freedom? You want to have a free life? The only way to be free is to put Christ at the center of everything we do. Kind of like air. You're free not to breathe air, right? But how's that going to go for you? Like not, you're not going to last long, right? And it's the same with Jesus. You're free. You don't have to follow him. But church, we come to Jesus not for a better life, but we come to Jesus because he is life. He's the source of all life. And he's the only one who can give us a true purpose and identity. He's the only one who can set us free, who has the power to set us free from the slave masters of our past so we can bear fruit. Bear fruit for God. This means to be a blessing to the world. It reminds me of my friend Chris. He grew up in China. His family moved to the United States. His parents came to faith when he was in middle school. He went to college. He went to the university, joined a college ministry. He thought his parents were crazy, but then the gospel was revealed to him. Jesus ran him down, opened up his eyes. He saw that he was a sinner. He needed to be saved, gave his life to Christ. Now, he's a brilliant young man. He could do anything he wanted. He said to me, Keith, I could make a lot of money in America. I could be extremely comfortable. I could position my life in such a way that I probably don't have to suffer very much. Do you know what? My heart breaks for my countrymen, for my people in China who are still enslaved to these false gods. And guess what? He went back to Asia, and he's sharing the gospel and starting a church through our network of churches so that people can be freed from the gospel. And so church sanctification is Jesus frees you from your selfishness so you can serve other people. That's where you're going to find life. And Paul finishes this section with verse 23. You haven't memorized this or you haven't heard this. It's one of the most powerful verses in the Bible. It's kind of like Paul's crescendo to the book of Romans this far. And it says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I want you guys to think of it like this. The cost of sin is death. That's the wage. That's what we owe. But the cost of righteousness is life. So when you read the Bible, you can take one truth. You can put that on the screen. And then you can look at the opposite of it. That's how you can use a truth. But the cost of righteousness is life. Did you guys know that Jesus couldn't stay in the tomb because he was righteous? Death was only for sinners, but Jesus was the sinless lamb. He died for our sins, but he wasn't sinful. And you won't stay in the tomb because he made you righteous by faith as well. But even today, this process of sanctification is you aren't a slave to death. Death has no dominion over you. You have an eternal life starting today, and you aren't a slave. 
The question is this, have you taken this free gift? Have you made it the center of everything you do? And if you haven't, Paul would say, you're still a slave. You're still miserable. And he would say, come, come to the only master that can give you life, which is Jesus Christ, our King. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for giving the lens of this reality. That Lord, although sin is powerful and a terrible slave master, on the opposite end, Jesus, you are more powerful. You have defeated death. You've defeated sin. And the best part about how powerful you are, God, is you're so loving. You're so kind. You are the most gentle, loving king there is. And you are the only one that knows what we really need. And Lord, you set us on this path of sanctification. You know what we need to grow. You know what we need to cut out of our life to grow. And Lord, you use our life and our circumstances to chisel away these bad habits. And so Jesus, I pray your freedom over this church, Lord, that we could be a church that's full of freedom. But with that freedom, God, we would be fully committed to you, your purposes, your church, your great commission, and your great commandment. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.